Too small. What's got any of this? Yeah, it's twice the size of the one we normally have. We don't make enough for Christmas. That's our trouble. It's a season of goodwill. Family. It's high time you start thinking about a family of your own. Find some nice young fella. Get set up in life. It's not that flame and easy. It doesn't just happen to order. Choice is a bit more limited for one thing. Maybe some places like San Francisco, all the blokes with their dicks on their sleeves there, they reckon. You ever thought of going there for a holiday? I don't want to live like that, Dad. I don't want to live in a world that just begins and ends with being gay. I like having all sorts of people around, kids and old folks, every sort of person there is. I don't want to live in a world without women. I like women. Me and the girls in the office get on great. They know and they don't care. We laugh about it. Fancy the same bloke sometimes. Even fancied a couple of the girls. Done it with a few of them just to make sure I wasn't missing out on anything. You've done it with girls? You never told me that. Yeah. I didn't want you to get your hopes up. Do you like it? See what I mean? Hey, hey. Bugger it. Could you get it up? Of course I could. It's not exactly an obstacle course. I quite enjoyed it, actually. Something different. But they just don't turn me on like men do. Would, would you like to try it again? No, Dad, not off the top of my head. See what I mean about getting your hopes up? I like doing it with blokes, Dad. I don't think that's ever going to change because I don't want it to. I don't want to be limited by other people's ideas of who I am, yours or anyone else's. Good day, everybody. Dean Laffin here uh, in the intro chair today, and we are picking up where we left off with our fabulous chat with H. Allen about the history of LGBTQI in cinema and all range of topics around that. It's been a blast. It's going to be a blast. There's a lot more gay to say. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dino, what do you think? What's what's on your oh. list, baby? Okay, well, I'm going to quickly cover a couple of movies that I really like in very short terms and just recommend them. But to pick up H. Allen's point there about it just being a penis, there's a funny scene in that movie, The Some of Us, with Russell Crowe, mm. where he and his dad are gardening in the backyard and it's domestic bliss and they're talking about whatever. And then Russell says, I have tried it with girls. And his dad turns around and he's like, you've had sex with girls? And he said, calm down, calm down. He said, I didn't even want to tell you. I knew you'd get your hopes up. He said, I just wanted to know if I was missing anything, but I'm over that. So <laughs> it, was, it was a nice scene. But anyway, a movie which is not overtly about gay aspects or elements, but is also one of the most underrated movies that I saw in recent years is a movie called Bad Education with Hugh Oh, Jackman. that's on my list. Have either of you seen yeah. Oh, there you go. I okay. love bad education. So this is essential. It's based on a true story and it's a fraud. It's a story of fraud. Hugh plays the principal of this really well-to-do college. They're raising tons of money. Everything's going great. The real name, he plays the real guy, Frank Tassone. And it turns out he's been defrauding the college of millions of dollars. And then only at the very end of the movie does it transpire that he's also gay. So he's been hiding not only the fraud, but he's been hiding from the community that 
the school's in one area and he lived in New York and that's where all his money went. He was living his, this rich lifestyle in Manhattan or something like that. I can't remember. But the point is, and now we're going for a big jump cut here, when I watched the movie, it reminded me of an interview on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. She was talking to a guy who wrote a biography on J. Edgar Hoover. And J. Edgar Hoover was the infamous <laughs> head of the air FBI for decades and extremely 50s right-wing conservative. Extreme homophobe. And, and extreme. he was held to ex- exactly extreme homophobe and was alleged to be a cross-dresser. Now, Terry was interviewing a guy who'd written an extensive biography on him and said about this, he said, I don't believe, A, that he was a cross-dresser. He said, all my research, I could find nothing to say that he was. I think it was a smear thing. And he said, this is what I believe about his set against homosexuals. He said, I couldn't find any evidence that he actually was against homosexuals, but because he was so psychotically obsessed with spies and obfuscation and and all that sort of thing, he had the opinion that anybody that could work for the FBI that could successfully, in inverted commas, bypass the intake program of the FBI and be an agent for several years as a gay guy, but not get tagged as a gay guy might be the sort of person that was just skilled enough to also be a double agent. And that was his take on his set against homosexuals. Now, I don't know whether that was true or not or whether it's fact or not, but that's what reminded me, H. Allen, about bad education, that Hugh was using the similar kind of masking techniques to mask his financial malfeasance as he was about his personal life. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that was interesting. The other film that I really liked, and I saw this only recently, is a British film called Pride. Probably the best-known actor in it is Bill Nighy. And this is a really feel-good British film about it's during the Thatcher era. There's a bunch of miners in Wales that are losing their jobs. They've got no food. They're starving. They're whatever. And a couple of guys from, I think, London, they're gay activists, and they decide they're going to go down and help raise money for the miners and look after the miners, based on a true story, by the way. Mm. And, of course, they go into this very conservative Welsh town. There's a huge lot of pushback, but eventually there's acceptance, and then it's just a feel-good movie, and it ends, as it does in real life, with the Labour Party of the UK finally voting to recognise gay marriage and the deciding vote was cast by the miners' union because of the support that the gay community gave the Welsh miners back only a few years before. So it was just... (laughs) (laughs) So it's gay element aside, it's just one of those heartwarming British films that they pop out from time to time. It sounds like you've seen it, hey, Challen, right? I have, yeah. I'm obsessed yeah. with the Margaret Thatcher era, so I watch everything involving that. I don't know why. I, I, I hate Margaret Thatcher, but okay. yet I can't stop reading about her. So what was your take on that? Am I looking at the movie through rose-tinted glasses, or did you think it was a worthy... Uh- I think oftentimes films like that tend to sugarcoat certain experiences. There were still certain things happening in the UK where it was still criminalized to be homosexual. There were certain things that you often overlook in those depictions. But I mean, that's storytelling. That's why storytellers aren't historians. And even mm. like with what you what you were mentioning about J. Edgar Hoover, one of the things that even within historians assisting on films, 
they often only want to look at things that they can source, things that they can document, paper trails. But the problem with marginalized communities is that we often don't have paper trails because we lived under the radar. And that goes for women, that goes for queer people, that goes for people of color. And so there often aren't documents that the typical college-bred historian can go to to be like, this paper showed that J. Edgar Hoover was a cross-dresser. There isn't that. Yeah. So there's this new move, not a new movement, but there's a movement within historians to really sort of acknowledge that there are the personal stories, the verbal stories passed down either secretly or anonymously or whatever, also should be held to just as much of a fact as a lot of source materials. Because if the shared stories all add up to one thing and there's nothing source material, well, this has to mean something if they have connections to the actual thing. But those that's often overlooked. So Whenever I hear there was no proof of something, I'm like, well, did you go to the gay bar? Because you probably should go to the gay bar. Right. Um, and I think what our friends hey. and Laura would say, there's more behavioral evidence than maybe yes. a love letter yes. or pictures of him you know, Fully that. in a bustier. I want to amplify because we were talking about BIPOC representation in this group. So there is a character on Zoe's Infinite Playlist. I don't know if you watched mm-hmm. that show. It is just, I it think. just it, got canceled. It, no, it did not. Really? It did. It oh, did. It was I mean, that's sweet. what I heard at least. Yeah. It's a sweet, wonderful show, but there is an actor on it, Alex Newell, who plays Mo, who is, it's the interesting casting story is that the role was originally supposed to be in the breakdown, a 31 year old bisexual black woman. Mm. And through the grace of the casting directors, they brought in Alex Newell. And so they rewrote it to sort of match really his, love his life story. So if you don't have never seen it, he actually goes by he, although he dressed is feminine most of the yeah. time and fabulously. I mean, you can still be non-binary and use he pronouns. So that's right. still something you can do. Right. And he is gay and he has boyfriends, but he, one thing, his voice is incredible, incredible. and his yeah. just fearlessness and the personalities is unabashed on his size. He's a larger mm-hmm. boy. Mm-hmm. He's a large boy and yeah. he's just fearless about it. The way yeah. that he dresses and just loves his body. And I just am so inspired by that mm. portrayal by Alex Newell. I just want everybody to please go and watch it. You can stream Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist on Hulu. Mm. It's good. Hulu, you can please sponsor my podcast if you, <laughs> if you want to. So go for it, HL. Well, I want to say the bad education. So when you said bad education, I got real excited because one of my favorite films, queer films of all time, is a film that's also called Bad Education, but it's not the one oh. you were talking about. I watched yours because <laughs> I watch anything Alice and Janney does. Also the Kaiser Permanente oh, commercials. Love Alice and Janney. Uh, I would watch her reading her gas bill. Oh, trust she, me. I have. Good. I get notifications on my phone that says every time she posts an Instagram post. That's how much <laughs> I love Alice and Janney. So anyway, I did watch that. But the, the bad education I was talking about was the Pedro Almodovar film with Gael Garcia Bernal. It's a gorgeous queer fest of just gayness and sex and gender just fucking up. But it's just so good. It's just so good. I That wasn't on the one I really wanted to mention, but it's really, really good. You should watch it. So the three that I want to mention that are sort of just in my head that I feel like everyone should know about is the one in my opinion, that started it all for queer representation in film. The one that straight people didn't know it at the time, I don't think, but every single gay person in the United States in 1955 knew that that was a gay person in film playing a character. Sal Mineo in Rebel with yep. Yes. Yeah. Literally, yep. you watch it now and you're like, this kid's so gay and has a crush on James Dean. Like, this right. kid mm-hmm. is in love with James Dean. Right. Who was ever thinking he was anything other than in love with James Dean? And James Dean 
was using that sort of flirtation and flirting back, not with the intention of doing anything, but Mm -hmm. it was sort of an evolved straight man in that. And I have this with straight male friends of mine now where you can play off each other a little bit. There's a sense of sort of flirtation that can come between the gay Mm -hmm. guy and the straight guy. And you can have that kind of relationship where the straight guy knows that I'm a gay man and I like men and the straight man likes attention. And James Dean played off that with Sal Mineo. And Sal mm. Mineo was this tragic, I mean, he's a tragic character and he played into the trope of mm. the tragic and gay it, right. person in film. Right. In human life as well, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, he was murdered That's as well years later. Tragically death, murdered. Yeah. But he was also very forward and he had a really popular play about being out and gay. I think that he wrote even. And he, mm. he became an advocate in years later for really just being an out gay actor. But in that film even though it plays into the horrible tropes of the tragic gay person, he's still, for me, watching it as a kid, I watched it for the first time when I was maybe, I don't know, 15, and I started loving film. I was really just do, watching all the important films, and I watched that, and I was like, this kid is awesome. This kid is so cool. I love this kid, and I hate that he had to die. Spoiler alert. Yeah, you should have watched it in 1955. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah, I hate that he had to die. So that's one that whenever I talk about queer cinema, I'm always like, go watch Salminio in No More Without a Cause. The yeah. other one that is happening now that I think everyone should be watching, and I actually think in years to come, will be a cultural shift. Veneno. Veneno is an incredible show on HBO right now, and it tells the true story of this prostitute in Spain who became a Kardashian of the day in the 90s, I think it was. And it's just so good. And it it tells the story of queer and trans people of color in Spain and people who are struggling to sort of just make it and their story and that journey of how you in the 90s had to transition. And it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful show. I definitely highly recommend it. I mean, to me, that is having a huge impact on queer people right now in the moment. And then the other one is, and we texted a little bit earlier about this, but they're not gay films. They have nothing to do with gay people. They're not queer storylines. There's no one really gay in it half the time, but they have become essential queer films. Films like Mommy Dearest, films like Funny Girl, films mm-hmm. like Shelley Long and Troop Beverly Hills, Meryl <laughs> Streep and what's her name in Death Becomes Her, Goldie, like Goldie, Hawn. Goldie Hawn. Those films have become gay films. And they why are gay is films. That? Articulate why. So they become gay films because there's this sense, and I think it's the same for like the Golden Girls, which is another thing that I think, I mean, I had a Golden Girls podcast. I'm really well known in the Golden Girls space. (laughs) It's the same thing I think with that is that it plays into this idea of here are marginalized characters, right? These women aren't necessarily gorgeous and aren't necessarily, they're not the standard of beauty. They're not the standard of perfection. They're not whatever. And they play on that. And yet they still succeed. They still somehow come out on top. They still are fabulous in all the best Mm -hmm. ways. And I think queer people, I think any marginalized person, but I think why queer people attach themselves to it is because it's an escape and we see ourselves in it in a way. We want to be fabulous on top of all of everything, all the adversity we have to go through. And these women personify that. Right. That's why they're gay films. Right. Mm, I love it. I love it. It's amazing that you mentioned Sal Minio, who some of our younger listeners are going to have to go to use the Wayback Machine, HL, and to find out who he was or look at it on YouTube, because I had literally written that as a point, because in that short history of homosexuality in film, perhaps, as you say, Dara, your friend, they make the point that during the 50s, of course, this was made under the Hayes Act, and if you had a gay character, what happens to him in the end of the film? He gets murdered, right? He gets shot. He's gay, but he has to get his comeuppance, right? As did immoral characters 
at the time. And indeed, in that same, let me just run through a couple of quick points of why you should look at this 12-minute video, making the point that the first male gay kiss they shot in 1895, mm-hmm. and there's a big male kiss in the movie Wings in 1927, the first which won the first winner. ever, yeah. first best picture for an Oscar. Yeah. And then there was sort of a period where, yes, we can have lesbians, but they've got to be mannish and they've mm-hmm. got to be, they had to fit a certain trope. And then once the Hayes Act came in, it was not just homosexuality, but any kind of immorality mm-hmm. as driven by the church. And apparently, I didn't know this, but the infamous movie, The Lost Weekend, well, what they did in the film is that they swapped out. So his conflict in the film, his conflict is writer's block, but in the book, the conflict is gender confused. And so that they're like, well, we can make the movie, but that's got to go, right? We're going to rewrite yeah. that. So that was amazing. And um, Do you believe they, they made it writer's block? Whoever wants to see a movie about writer's block? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And anyway, look, according to this, this little clip, there was a blossoming of rightful or respectful stuff in the 70s, Midnight Cowboy, uh, mm, Cabaret, mm-hmm. It was kind of positive. And then when the 80s hit, things went cruising and back to the sort of bad old days and even stuff like Basic Instinct and those other movies where you had homosexual psychotic killers. Yeah. And then post that, then it sort of, you got into the My Own Private Idaho's and Mm. a more confident representation. But it's important to note that all of the the references, even in the video that you're referencing, they're all white Mm. characters. They're all white films. They're all white characters. And the thing for me... You look at the 70s and the explosion of queerness in film in many ways. I think a lot of that can be credited to Andy Warhol on some of his experimental films. But The Boys in the Band was the first time that you really saw a proud black man as a character in a Mm -hmm. film that there wasn't a tragedy attached to this person. And it wasn't a huge film at the time. It has become a massive film. But I think it's really important that we note that a lot of these great advancements in queer characters and queer characters over time, they were all white. Because how many Mm. queer people of color would go watch television or go to the movies in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and not only not see anyone queer that represented their identity, but oftentimes not see anybody like them in film, regardless of if they're queer or not. And that I think that's always something really important. And my boyfriend actually just texted me, my always keeping me a better person, that in Veneno, they're sex workers. It's not the appropriate term to say yep. prostitutes. Yeah, they're sure, sex sure. workers. So. Got it. By the way, you mentioned Boys in the Band. Do you happen to recall who directed that in the 70s? I do. It's the same director as Cruising and yeah. uh, The yeah. Exorcist, yep. right? He also did The Exorcist too. Billy Freakin. Yeah. William, yeah, yeah. William Freakin. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Got to give one up for the straight guys. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> there is one character in television who was black gay, proud, and a motherfucking badass. You know I'm talking about Omar coming in The Wire. Michael Mm -hmm. Kenneth Williams was just unmatchable in his humor and confidence. And it's just one of the best portrayals ever. I love that. (laughs) I have a joke in my act where whenever I'm at a straight show, I always say straight people. The one thing that you always really want us to get into, but we're never going to get into Friday Night Lights and The Wire. Just give it up. We're not going to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) We're not. Stop suggesting it. We don't care. Those are my two favorite shows. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You and every other, well, you're not straight, but you and every other straight person, literally, I can't tell you how many, mostly straight female friends have been like, you got to watch Friday Night Lights. It's about more than football. Trust me. 
I don't care. <laughs> I'm not going to watch it. I, uh, I love Connie Britton. I'll watch uh, her in Nashville. Exactly. Hey, Challen, were you around when Billy Crystal came on the scene in Soap? playing, I think, Lisa, that would have been one of the first openly gay characters it was, in a it was, sort of mainstream sitcom. Yeah. Was, I wasn't around then, but the person who created, or who was right. a writer on Soap, Susan Harris, created The Golden Girls. So I know. <laughs> and when The Golden Girls ah. premiered on television, an interesting, I just did an episode of the podcast where we talked about all the queer moments on The Golden Girls. And Warren Littlefield, who produced The Golden Girls and also had sort of worked a little bit with Soap and had worked with Susan Harris, a directive that he had when they were creating the show was that they wanted four women that weren't necessarily represented on television, but they needed to go further than that. They needed to do something that soap had done and do something to sort of move the needle a little bit forward in terms of representation. So they added a gay Butler, gay houseboy in the first episode, Coco. Mm -hmm. And he was there because it was supposed to have this big gay representation, but then Estelle Getty was supposed to be a guest star as Sophia. And Mm -hmm. she through the roof, people loved her. And the funny thing about Estelle Getty, another great gay moment, is that Estelle Getty got the part because she played the mom in Harvey Firestein's Torch Song Trilogy on Broadway and was massive. And that film, uh-huh. or that play on Broadway, won all the Tonys. It was the first gay play. It was about a drag queen who wanted to get married and have children and have a monogamous life and a quote-unquote normal life. And it's, it couldn't be because of the times. But she got her start in that, and that's how she got on The Golden Girls. That's- it's very... Very gay. Very, very gay. gay. Very gay. You reminded me when you were telling me about all of the mommy dearest and funny girl. So Barbara Streisand and her nose. When I was watching this show called Call My Agent, there is a lesbian on Call My Agent. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe, have you ever heard of Call My Agent? It's a French show. It's fantastic. No, I haven't. But there's a... Yeah, there's I can't a, get my yeah, agent on, on my phone. list to watch. <laughs> this is a whole bunch of French... I literally French can't. High-powered A-list agents. They represent Julia Bonash is in it and Monica Bellucci. Anyway, so Mm. Andrea, played by Camille Cotin, she's this high-powered lesbian. Her nose is enormous, but it's so fucking beautiful. You just want to caress it. But what I love about her character is that she is a womanizer, just Mm. a straight-up, sexy, hilarious, selfish, assertive womanizer who in the course of the series gets married has a baby has to mm. so she has this really great arc and it's just great i love that yeah yeah i'll have to check really, that out it's a really great show last couple ones i just wanted to mention before we go orange is the new black of course yes plenty of people of color on that show laverne and- cox laverne yeah, cox. i mean please the things that caitlin jenner stole from the fame of laverne Co- caitlin <laughs> jenner came on the scene right after laverne cox and it was just like we don't want you caitlin we want laverne sorry you're great you did mm-hmm. good things but quiet down caitlin we want yeah, laverne it's amazing she's amazing and <laughs> Somebody on the Um, panel I was on mentioned today that the writers, you have to be very careful when you do write a a role like this because you might want to show a flashback to your pre-transition. Her flash, incredible. Incredible. But not everybody has a twin brother that can play them. A gay, well, he's gay too, I think. (laughs) A gay twin brother. Right. It's just something that you can't just ask somebody, well, can you just go back to the way you were? Before? However, it happens in Veneno. So in Veneno, the, oh, one really? of the lead characters plays a, well, originally assigned male at birth and then over the course of the series transitions into female. But yet she is a trans actress who she's a female actress. And, mm-hmm. and so she had to sort of blend that. And that's why it's so beautiful. It's a really good portrayal. Yeah. I can't recommend oh, it enough. Cool. 
All right, guys. What mm, else? Lisa, yeah, I just want to say Laverne was the cafe owner in Promising Young Woman, was she not? Yeah, she was. Uh, she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. We just we did a whole episode on that show. We such just, a good we show. Such film. a good anyway. movie. Such a good movie. Yeah. yeah. I guess the only other one that okay, I think I, I have to mention, just because it is so important that I feel like gay people listening would be like, um, <laughs> why? Why don't you say something about this? Oh. Is the important for me at least when we're talking about television, since we kind of shifted to some television stuff, mm-hmm. is Tales of the yeah. City. Tales yes. of the City. Tales of the City was this weird PBS thing that morphed into a big deal. And I remember as a kid, a young kid, they would on the news be like, this PBS show shows nudity, (gasps) gay nudity. And I was so intrigued and I didn't even know on the cable that we had in my bedroom in St. Louis, I didn't get PBS. So I had to figure out a way to go to a friend's place to watch PBS while my friend wasn't there. (laughs) So I made friends. I made friends with my friend's mother. I kind of totally duped her. I'm very good at this. And I was like, I might come over a little early and I'll wait for Ian. No worries. I'll just be there a little early. Totally went into Ian's bedroom. Ian was at practice. I was watching Tales of the City. Thank you. And God bless Olympia mm. Caucus. We just love. Well, while we're on TV, some of the stuff that I've seen, all that, especially my kids have said, "Hey, check this out, Sensate." I don't know if you've you oh, yeah. seen that. Yes, that, my friend was in that. Yeah, gorgeous, and just gorgeous totally show. enjoyable series. Yeah, fantastic show. Killing Eve, of course. Yes, Killing and Eve. And my daughter Hannah has just told me that in season three, they're starting to write a gay relationship between Hannibal, and they're starting to hint. At it between oh. Hannibal and Will. So Hannibal is, of course, for those of you who don't know, he's the serial killer from Sons of the Lambs and Red Dragon, etc. But this is the TV adaptation. And Hugh Dancy plays Will Graham as the FBI profiler tracking him. And they end up getting physically close as they know who each other are. And it's just a matter of trying to yeah. prove it. I wrote an article on the, I think it was the 30th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs and the complicated queer history of the Silence of the Lambs because mm-hmm. at the time of the Academy Awards, there were protesters. There were ACT UP protesters outside mm-hmm. protesting the Silence of the Lambs and the portrayal of uh, Buffalo Bill character mm-hmm. in Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. and sort of making this trans person, uh, all kinds of weird things that the film did that you watch the film now. And I talked to this one He's doing a documentary on Shudder about queer horror films. And he was really poignant in, I'm blanking on his name now, but he was really poignant in telling me that you have to look at these films because they were, Stance of the Lambs is such an important film. It's such an important film in horror history, Mm. in queer film history. Mm. And you have to recognize what's complicated about it and what's wrong about it and hold it accountable for being wrong while at the same time recognizing what it did in the canon of queer film history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important distinction that you can't cancel it necessarily because it did something to get us to where we are so that we can say that should be canceled. That's right. That's right. Mm. And what a mm. performance. Yeah, in, what a movie. performance. Oh. He's just incredible. Uh, yeah. He's another actor that I just cannot take my eyes off him. Anytime he's on screen, I'm mm-hmm. just like, wow. Say his name, and, Ted, and as you talk about it in mainstreams. Ted. With oh, uh, Ted. The guy who played oh, Buffalo yeah. Bill? Yeah, Ted Levine. Ted Levine, yes. Ted Levine. Levine. Yeah, Ted Levine. Yeah, Ted Levine. 
He's brilliant in everything. He's been brilliant yeah. in everything he's been in. Didn't he appear regularly in, what was in his Monk. name, that obsessive detective? <laughs> in Monk, um, yeah. You oh, in Monk! More, Tony more Sh- different yeah. than Buffalo Bill. Monk. In Monk, yes. He's kind of a crotchety <laughs> yeah, old. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. But- yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, likewise in major film, when I you talk about Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, in the same way that Javier Bardem played that outwardly mm-hmm. gay character in Skyfall, that kind of teased James Bond when he was tied to the chair and throughout that. So yeah. yeah, on the one hand, it's a gay character, but once again, he's a psychotic murderer or mm. a baddie. Yeah. So mm. yeah. hey, one movie that I did want to touch on, which is not a gay movie, but the implications in real life are just heartbreaking to me. And that was 2014, Benedict Cumberbatch yes. playing in the imitation game. Yes. I would say and that's a game. For those of you who haven't me. seen you would? Okay. All yeah, right. So based on a true story, playing a British guy called Alan Turing. Mm-hmm. If you just Google mm-hmm. Alan Turing, oh. he is an immense, he's just what he did. Right. Not only this, but what I read was there was a professor of military history. I copied this down, so I'm kind of reading, I'm crimping my notes here. Professor Jack Copeland. I'm going to read it as it's written. Professor Jack Copeland has estimated that Turing's work shortened the war in Europe by more than two years Mm -hmm. and saved 14 million lives because of the impact on the success of the Allies in the Battle of the Atlantic. For those of you who don't know, Alan Turing was the guy who led the team at Bletchley Park, which were the code breakers of England, and they broke the German Enigma code, which was the code, a machine. It was a machine with rotating dials, and the Germans used it to encrypt their messages that they would send to submarines and send everywhere. Mm. And what they didn't know was that Alan Turing built another machine to break that machine. And then British intelligence's challenge was to use that information but not use it so much that they gave away to the Germans that they'd broken Uh the code. Alan Turing, who is one of the towering minds, there's a thing called the Turing test. He's like the father of artificial intelligence. He invented this thing called the Turing test that's still used today, which is like a test of a, a robot. If you can talk to someone remotely or behind a wall, not verbally, but by text or voice, if you can tell whether that person's real or not, that's the Turing test. But here's the tragedy. He was gay at a time when that was unacceptable. He was arrested in 1952 for indecency, and that was just for admitting, not for a lewd act in public or anything like that, simply admitting to a police officer that he'd had Mm. sexual relations, inverted commas, with another man. He was offered either prison or chemical treatment. He chose the treatment, and so he was forced to take estrogen for 12 months, which really messed him up. And in 1954, he died. Most people believe it was suicide via cyanide, and so he was just persecuted to take his own life. And yeah. what a towering intellect, and he's, it just it sickens me, those sorts of stories. So. Well, and that's part of what, when you brought up pride, one of the things, there was the code, I forget the name of the code in England, that lasted long Mm -hmm. after Turing's life. And that's what they would persecute or they could arrest men, almost always just men, for having sex with other men. And 
so when you look back at this rosy history and you see these inspirational films sometimes and but then you realize mm -hmm. oh wait in here in the u.s we had sodomy laws that people were being arrested for just yeah. getting caught and that was until what 2003 oh it's wow it's insane to think that mm -hmm. these laws were still on the book that were doing these things to men and with turing i mean he was basically castrated and then of course that led to his death but i like what's happening now at least in that there's a reckoning happening for the abuses, yes. but not so much a reckoning with the public necessarily, because I feel like the public's on board. The public is like, yes, let's mm -hmm. let's celebrate Alan Turing. The reckoning needs to come from people in power. It needs to come from people like the Queen of England or the Prime Minister. Was Queen of England? He got he was on a note or something, I think, in England. Like, oh, okay. So the Queen officially pronounced Turing pardoned in yeah. 2014, and that was only the fourth royal pardon ever issued mm -hmm. since the end of World War II. And pardons are normally granted only when the person is technically innocent and a request has been made by the family or other interested party. Neither of those conditions were met in regard to her pardon of Turing, but yeah. she did it anyway. So I thought, good on you, Lizzie. Well yeah, done. Guys, yeah. I do think we have to wrap it up, but this has been so <laughs> fantastic. I want to end on a happy note. <laughs> yeah. And maybe this is just too much of an old school throwback. We're not supposed to say transvestite anymore. But who, no. I mean, Rocky Horror, please, come on. That I was mean, Rocky Horror, incredible. You can't. It's and how many queer people, there's some film, what was it? Perks of Being a Wallflower, where you find, mm. it, and it really tells the story of those late night showings of Rocky Horror Picture Show and how many queer people found themselves at these late night showings where all the quote unquote freaks would go to sing along to Rocky Horror yeah. Picture Show. And then you look around and you're like, wait, that kid's in my class. <laughs> Maybe he's gay. And then you go to school on Monday and it's like, well, you know, if you're getting picked on in the halls, you can point to that kid you saw at the Rocky Horror Picture Show midnight showing and be like, well, that kid's at least maybe going to be in my corner. Right. You know what right. I mean? And that's, a, that's an important thing. Yeah, yeah. If you Google Rocky Horror Picture Show Melbourne or something like that, because I live in Melbourne, Australia, I think it was the world's longest running. So every Friday night at this particular cinema until it closed, they played a midnight screening of Rocky Horror. It was like 13 oh. years in a row, yeah. something insane like that. So yeah. That's the thing, like every yeah. corner of this of our country, I think, had those midnight mm -hmm. showings where all the freaky kids mm. could come out and express themselves yep. and wear what they wanted and throw toast and have this yep. community experience with no judgment. Thank yeah. you, Tim Curry, for yeah. that. Mm. And of course, the writers and the directors, but Tim, without Tim and that mm -hmm. performance... He was everything. He was yeah. so he was so everything to I stalked him in a Gelson's once. Don't Did stalk you? him. Just don't <laughs> I mean appreciate him for Rocky Horror, but do not stalk him at a Gelson's. That's well, all. We I'll cast say. him on Criminal Mind. <laughs> and, and he was great. He was he great. was great. H. Allen, you bring it, yeah. man. When you no, thank you. It, you bring it all. And I'm I, so grateful that you jumped in for us. I mean, I've been fired from so many jobs in my life. The only thing I can do is talk. So thank you so much for letting me talk. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope you will talk with us again sometime. And I hope yeah. you, you, know, you turned it into an art form. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. I'm happy to be. Yeah. yeah. Please push us out on your socials too. And uh, where else can people hear you? Oh, well, I do a podcast on Dan Harmon's network called Starburns. It's the podcast called You're Making It Worse. It's a queer podcast where we make fun of queer people and straight people alike and often just complain. And then I also do Out on the Lanai, a Golden Girls podcast where we freak out on everything Golden Girls. Ooh. And I have a new Audible series coming out 
later this year, a true crime series, which is very serious. That's a departure for me. Mm, so what? I look forward to letting you guys hear that. Goodness, I'm fanning myself. You have to come yeah. on Real Crime Profile and tell us about it. Oh my God, I, <laughs> I would die. I would die. But of course I will because Jim and Laura are my personal dear friends that I would text in a minute if I have yes. to. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, sexy beast, you stay sexy down there in Melbourne. So everybody celebrate Pride Month. Get your freak on. Get your gay gay on because everybody's a little gay. Come on, everyone's you know it. Gay. Everybody's a little gay. All right. Yeah. For now, this is I almost said real crime profile. <laughs> this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.